it's good to see you back. Um, thanks for coming out. I didn't expect anybody to be here tonight. I thought you wouldn't be back yet. You would come see us and stuff like that. So thanks. It makes us feel really good. Glad you're here. Um, I want to give you a little bit of uh, an idea about what the semester looks like uh, coming up more than just tonight. Uh, we're breaking down the semester into four mini-series. Uh, first mini-series starts tonight. It's only four parts uh, to it. It's on the book of Revelation. Um, and we've entitled it Hope and Angst, or Angst, depending on how you want to put that, right? Uh, I don't know how you want to pronounce it, but it's A-N-G-S-T if you care. Okay, so that's a look at the book of Revelation in four parts. I'll be up tonight. Uh, next week is Dan, then Josiah, and then I'll wrap it up. Now, i got to say this about it. Straight up, there's no way to cover the book of Revelation in four you know, settings, right? It's just not going to happen. So we're going to hit the overviews of the book of Revelation and what we think it might mean for us today. Uh, second mini-series is about joy. And it comes from the book of Philippians. And that will be about four parts too. Again, with the four of us contributing. The third mini-series is really not so much a mini-series as it is a pause, a break, a topic. The topic is about love and relationships and stuff like that. And we'll actually have some experts up here, you know, panels, um, experts on love and relationship like my wife, um, who will tell you how to live with a jerk for over 30 years, stuff like that. You know, some, some practical kinds of stuff um, that will happen in, the, uh, in between. And then we're going to finish off with a series on the Psalms. And it's just going to be about practical Christian living. So um, it's going to be very biblically based this semester. Uh, not that we didn't, you know, engage the Bible last semester, but it was very topical, if you remember that, right? We had a different topic every week, um, but we're going to stay pretty much with text in a different kind of way this semester. And tonight we start off with the book of Revelation. So actually I start off with a question, an honest-to-goodness question. Um, what comes to mind when you think of the book of Revelation? Just shout it out. End of the world. What else? Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> I like that. What was that one? Dragons. Dragons? Yeah, dragons. Uh, anything else? Destruction. Destruction? Yep. That's the theme. Creatures with like a million eyes. Creatures with what kind of eyes? A million eyes. A million eyes. Yeah, yeah. That sounds about like Revelation. Anything else? That, that's the images you get, right? When you think of the book of Revelation, you think apocalypse, end times, dramatic stuff. As a matter of fact, there are some strange apocalyptic images in the book of Revelation. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you've got beasts, you've got miracle workers, you've got dragons, you've got alarming angels, you've got people coming back from the dead, you've got sensational predictions of all sorts concerning the ends of the time. It, it's a confusing book. And I've got to admit to you that among all the books of the Bible, this is the one that I do the least amount of work on because it completely freaks me out. <laughs> Honestly, it, it does. And I've been studying the Bible for quite a while now, but the book still freaks me out. I feel like I really don't understand what's going on. And there's so many interpretations to it that it's rather confusing. As a matter of fact, there's some bizarre interpretations to the book of Revelation. G.K. Chesterton, did you ever hear that name before? He, he's an English guy, a uh, real pithy uh, scholar. He would put things in succinct ways. He said one time, he said, um, though St. John the Evangelist, that's the author of this, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his visions, he saw no creatures so wild as one of his own commentators. 
right? In other words, he'd never seen a creature as crazy as the people who interpret the creatures he talked about. Because there's some wild and crazy interpretations of Revelation. So, got to say that up front. It's a bizarre kind of book. I also have to say up front that we don't have the answers on the book of Revelation. You know, we always do this Q&A thing up here, and we're going to be honest with you in the Q&A, but you're not going to get all the answers because nobody's got them all. Apocalyptic literature is mysterious, and it's hard to see. You can't see through the veil very well. It's just images, and they're kind of circulating around. So we'll do our best with images. Another thing I want to say about the book of Revelation is you can look at it several different ways. And there's lots of words that are associated with the book of Revelation. Eschatology, end times, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Don't know if you've heard any of those. Pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. Maybe you've heard some of those. There's lots of interpretations. But I want to mention just four. Okay, None of the ones I just mentioned right there, but four. You can, you can look at Revelation through at least four lenses. Okay? The one lens that you can look at Revelation through is what is often called a historicist point of view. Right? And that's basically, you look at the book of Revelation as a survey of church history. The history of the church. And it's broken down into seven representative periods. That's one way of looking at it. It's a rather historical, liberal interpretation of the book of Revelation. Okay, That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is what is called a preterist approach to the book of Revelation or end times. That is, events in the book of Revelation that you see here, events in this book were fulfilled in the past. That's not a common one. It's not one that you guys probably first think of when you think of theories about end times or the book of Revelation. This suggests that the events that we read about in the book of Revelation already took place. They took place somewhere around or before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple. Right? Some people actually think John was talking about those things and he was preparing the people who were reading and listening for either those events or looking back at events that might have already taken place. Okay, that's another way of looking at the book of Revelation. A third one is what you might call futurist. And this basically looks at the book of Revelation as a description of unfolding events um, that we're awaiting. We haven't seen them all, um, and they're about to unfold in front of us. And you try to figure out what those are. A fourth approach to the book of Revelation, just broadly speaking, is what you might call spiritualist understanding of Revelation. That is, there's divine principles, ideas in the book. There are themes that actually emerge throughout the history of the church. And they emerge over and over again. It's a picture, a, well, an eschatological picture of the end of it all. Not an eschatological picture of the end out there with a date, but the end being when Jesus came to begin with, and when all things end. And what you got is a spiritual picture of all these realities. And as a matter of fact, if you take a spiritualist interpretation of this, you've already seen the book of Revelation sometime. You already saw it happen. It happened yesterday. It happened last month. It'll happen again. Right? It's a spiritualist understanding of the world around you. And that's John's vision. Now, with that as a backdrop, let me remind you of something else. 
We think that John, that is the disciple John, was the one who wrote the book. And we also believe that John wrote this book, and according to his own writing himself, wrote this book as an exile on an island called Patmos. Now John is the only disciple that we know of that was not martyred. So John lived to a ripe old age and died, we assume in exile. So John is writing this epistle to the churches. And it happens, this vision that he writes, on the Lord's Day. Now remember, it's likely that all the disciples at this point, maybe, maybe not, because we don't know exact dates, have already died. And John is an old man. And he's thinking about the words of Jesus. And Jesus appears to him and gives him a revelation. And that's what this book is about. The context of the book, that is the era in which it was written and the place and all that kind of stuff, it's written to seven churches that are probably scattered throughout the Roman Empire, but primarily seven churches in what we now know of as Western Turkey. Okay? That's the place, historically, that these letters are written to, if you uh, want to think about geography. But there's something else about the book of Revelation in terms of its context. It was written to a group of people who were undergoing the persecution of a man, a Roman emperor, called Dominicium. In other words, the people that read this book or this letter for the first time were under the heavy hand of persecution from a very powerful Roman emperor. As a matter of fact, in order to understand the book, it probably would be helpful to imagine yourself as one of them. right? As you think about this book, as you read this book, think about yourself as a persecuted minority tiny minority just absolutely insignificant minority in a huge world and that huge world is against you and wants to stomp you out it's into that world that John writes these words and they're words from Jesus what's the point the point of the words are encouragement you don't think about the book of Revelation that much that way do you but that's what the book of Revelation was for. It was for people who were under the press of oppression and God was encouraging them through this letter. And the letter focuses on Jesus Christ. I want to read um, basically about 18 verses. Okay, um, So stay with me here. Um, I'll do my best to read well. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. <coughs> blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, 
and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve God and Father, to, glorify, to, be, to be glory and power, to him be glory and power forever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the isle or the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's the first 18 verses in the book of Revelation. Interesting. It only gets more interesting as you go. John speaking the words of Jesus. I want to break down those ideas into just the three sections with these words. From him, to him, and through him. That's the message. From him, to him, and through him. He begins with from him in verse 5. Who is it? And from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Faithful witness could be interpreted accurate witness. Faithful witness, of course, is from Jesus Christ, the accurate, faithful, absolutely inerrant witness concerning God. Or to put it another way, it's Jesus who's speaking these things. Confusing as they might be, unusual and hard to understand as they might be, it's Jesus, the inerrant Word of God, speaking these things. Or to put it another way, it's the one who's at the right hand of God the Father, who speaks on God's behalf. So you can be sure these words are true and accurate 
from a faithful witness. Second, this faithful witness is a perfect example for us to follow. This perfect witness, faithful witness, is not only the person who speaks on behalf of God, but as we know concerning Jesus, is God himself. So the faithful witness is not just the bearer of words, but the image or the stamp, the replica of God himself. There's another phrase. This faithful witness is also said to be the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead is a phrase that's used in the New Testament repeatedly, and it is referring to Jesus. Paul uses it, and other writers do as well. The firstborn from the dead is not just the person who came back to life. That would be like resuscitation. That would be like coming out of the grave, and that was the end of the story. Firstborn from the dead implies something much deeper than that. Firstborn from the dead means a person, namely Jesus Christ, who is raised in newness of life to indestructible life. And a life that is coming for all people. This firstborn from the dead is not just somebody who came back. This firstborn from the dead is the person who came back, who has resurrection life, and who infuses all life with life itself. The firstborn from the dead is the one who gives everything life. Or to put it another way, let's just stop for just a second. And in those few seconds, all of you breathed life. The firstborn from the dead is the breath of your life. That's who's speaking. The absolutely faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, who is life. This person, Jesus, is also said to be the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's, that's rather amazing when you think about it. Ruler of the kings of the earth. Ruler of the president of the United States. Ruler of the leader of Afghanistan. Ruler of the Prime Minister of Israel. Ruler over North Korea and China and Zimbabwe and Mali. And the list goes on. Ruler over all the rulers. This is unbelievable. It means that Jesus Christ is manipulating the affairs of humanity to an end game. It doesn't mean that everything that humanity does has been endorsed by Jesus Christ. It just means that Jesus Christ is in charge of all of it and everything and everybody. That's why he's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His dominion is bigger than Rome, which is the biggest thing these people could imagine. It's bigger than the United States. It's bigger than the world. It's bigger than the cosmos. Jesus is the ruler of all things. So that's the one who's speaking to John. In verses 5 through 7, you see to him. The to him describes a person, 
Again, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This one who speaks is the one who loves us. Not just the one who promises, not just the one who's powerful, not just the one who's ruler, but the one who loves us. The one who loves us. That's amazing too. Sometimes um, it seems a little bit unreal to me. Maybe, maybe not to you. Maybe you're more spiritual than I am and you just get it every day. Right? But see, here's what I get every day. I get the love of my wife. I know she loved me unconditionally because she wouldn't have stayed with me so long. I know the love of my son and my daughter. They were here for Christmas and it's like no other love I've ever experienced. I know the love of my family, my father and my mother. I know that kind of love and I see it sometimes daily and I feel it and I can express it to you and I can tell you what it looks like. But really, really guys, I can't always say that about Jesus. But it's true. I don't mean it's not true. I don't mean I don't believe it. I just mean that it's so out there sometimes. And, and this phrase reminds me that it shouldn't just be out there sometimes. The one who is the beginning and the end loves me. And so, when I think of the love of my wife, when I think of the love of my children, it's only a tiny microcosm of the deep divine love that the Son of God has for me. And that blows my tiny mind. But it's true. To Him who loves us. To Him who loves us, the One who freed us from our sins, who freed us from death, who said, it doesn't make any difference that you can never be perfect. It makes no difference, Bob, that you're a total screw-up. It makes no difference, Bob, that you continually struggle with the sins that you've always struggled with. And you're never able to completely defeat sin in your life. It doesn't matter, Bob. I freed you from your sins. Now what that means on occasion is that God gives me the grace to overcome sin that I can never overcome on my own. You know what it means on other occasions? That even when I cannot overcome the sin that so easily besets me, that sin I have still been freed of. That it cannot hold me, it cannot kill me, it cannot destroy my soul. It cannot damn me. Because I've been freed of it through the blood of Christ. <clears throat> Amazing. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. To Him who has made us kings and priests. Now, that one seems like it's got to be out there. You know what you think? I mean, do you feel very kingly? I don't. Um, I, you know, I'm a pastor and I still don't feel priestly. I, I just, I'm not there yet. It seems like that's one of those things that's got to be the more eschatological Oh, I know it's a reality. We are priests before God for individuals, for each other. I get that. 
I know that we're a part of the kingdom and we're advancing God's cause. And at some level, it makes us kings and princes and stuff like that. But there's something out there that I think he's speaking about now. He's basically saying, you know what? This whole big mess that you call the world, this thing that you cannot figure out, this sin that so easily besets you and destroys the world around you, there's going to come a time in my plan that because I chose you, you're going to be one of those people who brings peace to the world. You're going to be a king and a priest before God. That seems like one of those future statements more than present statements for me. This one to whom is all things, he's the one who is coming. The eternal kingdom is coming. I promise it's coming, he says. The last part of it, I'll just call through him. That's verses 9 through 18, and we read that. What you find in 9 through 18 is you find seven lampstands. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches that are about to come up. Churches are the light bearers to the world. That becomes utterly clear. But you know what else is true about those seven churches? They're persecuted. Remember I said um, it might be a good idea if you want to understand the book to think of yourself in their situation. Well, here's how that's hard. These people, some of them, were fed to lions. Some of them were burned at the stake. Some of them were dipped in boiling oil. Some of them were lit as human torches. Some of them were crucified with their babies. Light bearers to the world. Chosen ones. Redeemed. Loved. I got a word for you, says John. It's from Jesus. It's going to be okay. Hang in there. Work hard. Weakened church. Marginalized minority church. Sinful church that's not perfect like Jesus. Church with all the problems you can see in these seven churches. You're special to me. I'm coming. Stay with it. Just a few overview themes from the book of Revelation. Um, Matter of fact, it, it'll sort of follow this course for the next four parts. Not exactly, but with the three of us, it looks like it'll break down something like this. There's four key messages I want you to remember from the book of Revelation. The first one is this. The book of Revelation tells us that God is engaged in real history. I can't figure it out altogether. I don't know what all the signs mean. But what I'm absolutely confident of is that the book of Revelation says that God is engaged in history. He's absolutely in charge and he will be there. He's in charge of history. The incarnate Christ proved that by coming into the flesh. Second key message from the book of Revelation. There is a cosmic battle taking place. And it's played out on the scene of human history. Um, let's put it more practically. Whatever struggles you're facing, right, personally, and your walk with Christ, those struggles are not just about you and God. 
They're about a bigger story. They're about a cosmic story. A cosmic evil that wants to destroy the people who follow God. It's part of history. And you see it in the book of Revelation. The third key message or theme for the book of Revelation is this. God is sovereign over all history. Christ will reign. When it's all over, when the final chapter is written, absolutely everything will be okay because of Jesus. Uh, there's one uh, other major theme, I think, and it's this. True meaning, I'm talking about true meaning of life, true meaning in our temporal world, this fleeting, passing world, true meaning is found when we align ourselves with the eternal purposes of God. When right here and right now, in this time and space reality, we align ourselves with the eternal purposes of God, that gives us true meaning. And because that's true, our life has purpose that goes beyond our existence. And our life, which is full of pain and sorrow, is only a tiny blip on the radar screen of what is a magnificent story. Um, I like to think of it this way. Whatever troubles you're going through right now, and will go through, they're a little bit like a toothache when you were three years old. When you were three years old and you had a toothache, you thought everything was about your toothache, and you thought it would never end. Right? Or when you were 15 and you had your wisdom teeth removed. Or whatever it is, right? Just multiply it by a thousand events in your life where it seems like the pain is so intense that it will never go away and today will always be the same forever. That's the way we think about life. And what we ought to remember concerning life is that whatever we're going through right now, even if it's painful, it's just a tiny little blip on the radar screen. And in retrospect, someday, we'll be able to understand it. In retrospect, you know why it was so painful for that guy called the doctor to reset your arm after you broke it. Because it healed it. In retrospect, you'll learn all kinds of things concerning the pain that you're experiencing right now. And it'll all make sense. Eventually, it'll all come together. Not right here, not right now, but eventually it will. And that's the life of faith. Walking and believing that God will be, put all the pieces of the puzzle together and all of it will make sense in the end. So there you go. There's an overview of the book of Revelation. Absolutely fascinating book. We're not going to get into all the details because we can't, but that's the idea. God's in charge. Okay. Without further ado, I'm going to call the guys up and we're going to answer questions that you might have that we have no answers for. You just have to set the bar and expectation for a look. I did on purpose. Yeah. I mean, as usual, we often say, you know, that you guys, we just want this to be an open forum for any kind of questions, so it doesn't have to be about the book of Revelation, but if you have them, go ahead. We have a new record. This is the first time we received... Zero questions. So way. Yes. Must have really been intriguing. Well, go ahead. You might have questions, but you didn't send them in. Any questions? 
to some of the predestinations that come from Revelation. Look at it later in the web, it's talking about like 177,000. Sure. Yes. Uh, <coughs> the 144,000 uh, that are sealed, uh, that can be interpreted along the lines of you know, predestination and kind of Calvinistic uh, interpretation. It doesn't necessarily need to be. Uh, those who have you know, come at the book of, or come at scripture from a, the opposite of predestination would kind of be more of an Arminian free will emphasis, still have to wrestle with what is the 144,000. So it doesn't necessarily come from the book. It, it, I think you can find it there. I think you can find it more explicit in other places. Um, I, I will say that um, uh, various cults have been built on that one, right? You know that, right? Um, and the other thing is I would say this is a perfect example of uh, being wary of literalism. 144, it sounds like, well, it's 144, isn't it? Why else would they have written it that way? No, not really. There's really no reason to think so. Uh, because these are figurative kind of things. So, yeah, that's where you get tripped up a lot of times. I have a question. How can we know what things in the book of Revelation should be taken literally and which may be figurative of spiritual, uh, spiritual things? Like when they talk about beasts with nine eyes and crazy monsters, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah, that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's at the core of kind of the, the debates about how you understand the book of Revelation. Everyone understands that there are parts that are symbolic that aren't to be taken literally. I mean, I think it's Revelation 19 has Jesus coming back and a sword coming out of his mouth. I, I don't know any camp that takes that literally. But where you draw the line of which is literal and which is figurative or symbolic is incredibly difficult. Um, and I think there's probably more symbolism than there is literalism that fits the genre of apocalyptic literature. Numbers were intended to be symbolic, not literal. Uh, these images, I think what's happening is, is John is seeing a vision that so exceeds his ability to explain it all, he's grasping for word pictures and you know, things that will help convey the awesomeness and the... Uh, even at times the terror, you know, of what he's seeing. So I think more than literal, you find figurative. But where that slight, because there are parts that are literal too, but where you find that balance is it's kind of the nut of the whole issue, right? I mean, yeah, uh, so I'll go out on a limb. Dan and I don't agree on everything, right? You know that, but we, we don't. Uh, yeah. You're wrong and, about things? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, if, if we were to sit down here, like me and him, and try to figure out what was literal and what was not, I guarantee you he'd think certain things were one way, I think they were the other way. I mean, it's pretty, probably pretty true. So I preface my comments by saying this. And this is an extreme comment, okay? So take as an extreme and then I'll back off. None of it's literal. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Why do I say that? Because the nature of apocalyptic literature is symbolic, not literal, right? So even among the literal themes, it's still not really literal. It's symbolic for something that is literal. Uh, or to put it another way, the best way to pick out what is literal is to think about what the themes 
in the book that exists are true. Right? At the end of it all, Christ is going to set up His kingdom. Don't know how, don't know when, don't know if it's a thousand years or a million years or whatever it is. God's in control. He's going to set up His kingdom. That's absolutely true. Take it literally. The beast with nine eyes, I really don't have a clue. Maybe it's nine nations. Maybe it's nine people. Maybe it's a beast with nine eyes. I don't know. The point is, it was pointing to something else because that's the nature of apocalyptic literature. It's an image that gets you to think beyond it, right? Um, and apocalyptic literature, by the way, doesn't just exist in the book of Revelation. It's in Ezekiel with weird wheels spinning around and all that kind of stuff, right? And it's even in the Old Testament when it relates to the coming of Jesus. Um, sometimes when I look at the book of Revelation, I think that we're a bunch of people like the people in the Old Testament looking for Jesus. Um, it's just a different era, and we're getting it wrong just like they did sometimes. You see it in the Gospels too. Uh, you see it in the Gospels too, with you know Jesus talking about the end times and you know moons collapsing and stars going out and things like that, yeah. apocalyptic genre and stuff. Yeah. Um, one more question that we're kind of wondering about. Uh, so you talked earlier in your message about different perspectives for interpreting the Book of Revelation, and I think one of them was historical narrative, and another was. Um, spiritual, spiritual something. Um, do you think that those perspectives should be, all of those perspectives should be used, or do you think that there um, is one that is the most accurate way for interpreting the book, or are they all used at different times? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I think it has to be some blending of all of them. Um, it, it, for example, if you're a, a futurist, you think all these things are in the future. Well, at some point, the future arrives. Now you're a historicist, right? And it's describing what's actually happening. So uh, I think it's some blending of all these things. There's spiritual realities that are meant to point us again to... I, I think what's happening is real life is happening. Real events are taking place. And John is, in a way, opening the veil and giving you a glimpse behind the curtain, you know, of the strings that are being pulled and the realities that are unseen. And so I think it's a little bit of the spiritual, the futuristic, the historicists, kind of all blended together. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, it just depends on which emphasis uh, you are inclined to. Um, and some of them just seem to be a little off balance when you emphasize one too much, uh, it seems like to me. Um, I think the one that gets neglected the most, though, and overlooked the most, is the preterist view that I mentioned. The idea that the events that are in this book at some level have already taken place, or have taken place and are repeating themselves. I think that one gets frequently overlooked as a, as a real possibility. Very interesting. Does anybody else have questions? Any other questions out there? Andy? So the Left Behind series was really popular like 10 years ago. I was wondering how pastors like yourselves view those books, and was it a very like respectable interpretation? Like, how was that been? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say this, and then I'll pass it to Dan. What most people don't know is that the interpretation in the Left Behind series was at one point declared a heresy in the church. <laughs> But that series caused more arguments in my marriage than anything else I could remember. <laughs> my, my wife worked for those authors for three years.
years as a PR person, and I was going to seminary at the time, uh, and so it was kind of my whipping boy, you know, as I was studying the book of Revelation. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a work of fiction, and it's an engaging work of fiction. Uh, one of the authors was, was kind of the theologian behind it, and one of them was the writer. Uh, and I think it's a work of fiction. Uh, I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a pretty good summary, don't you think, of sort of the Schofield reference <laughs> yes, Bible approach yeah. to things, right? Which is the that sort of premillennial kind of all that kind of stuff that came. A lot of it came, by the way, out of Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, there was a guy called... Um, Lewis Perry Schaefer, who was a big theologian among people from the Dallas uh, segment. And a lot of that, premillennial, all that kind of stuff, it's called dispensationalism, was well described in that movie. Yeah. It, it only came on the scene in the late 19th century. Yeah. I mean, my parents thought that that was the gospel handed down from Jesus kind of stuff. Right. That was really a Johnny-come-lately on the theological scene. Yeah, that is interesting because so much of the time we think what we hear that's right up front, you know, everybody knows about it, is a thing that was historically true for years and it was certainly a way minority opinion. So. Well, uh, I liked your use of Johnny Come Lately. <laughs> I saw a lot of smiles. <laughs> Let's invite the band back up here. We're going to worship with one more song. All right. 